This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be talking to Rick Herrera about his book um, titled Feeding Washington's Army, Surviving the Valley Forge Winter of 1778, published by University of North Carolina Press in 2022. In the book, Dr. Herrera presents a major new history of the Continental Army's grand foraging expedition um, in this really key time period of the American Revolutionary War. Um, The book does a really good job of helping us understand kind of what it was actually like day to day for the people literally on the ground in the mud um, trying to feed themselves at this time, as well as explain the wider sort of strategic aspects, the tactical and logistical challenges um, and kind of bring it all together in a way that makes a lot of sense. So I'm really happy to welcome Rick, you to the podcast. Oh, it's great, uh, Miranda. Thanks so much. Uh, you make me want to read the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully you can share some of those bits with the um, listeners in the course of the interview. But could we maybe start off before we get to all those fun bits? Um, can you introduce yourself, your background and explain why you decided to write this book? Sure, absolutely. I, um, let's see, until next week, I am professor of military history at the School of Advanced Military Studies, U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. That's a mouthful, and it's uh, located at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. I've been teaching at SAMS, which is the school's nickname, for 10 and a half years. But uh, next week, I will join the faculty of the Department of National Security and strategy at the U.S. Army War College, Carlisle Barracks, Pennsylvania. Congratulations. Thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to it. There are some phenomenal people there. But um, I am a military historian. I mostly focus on the early modern period. I'm most comfortable in the 18th century. I do, however, occasionally venture out uh, into the 19th century And in fact, my most recent article just got released today from Military Review, in which I discuss the, oh, mythical background of the U.S. Army's mission command with the so-called German concept of Auftragstaktik. And I will not go into that unless you want me to. (laughs) (laughs) Um, In any case, so I I do occasionally venture out into the modern era, but then I run as quickly as possible back into the 18th and 19th centuries, which are my happy places as a historian. But I teach uh, a wide variety of things, strategy, operations, theory, 
you name it, whatever I'm told, because I work for the Army. And it's generally fun. Yes. Well, let's go then into your happy place. Um, can you tell us a bit about kind of the situation that we're facing in the beginning of your book? What were the logistical, geographic, political, economic, really all the challenges facing, obviously, General George Washington at the beginning of 1778 as he's ending up in Valley Forge? What is the problem he's trying to solve? Sure, absolutely. You know, this the book came out of, if I can backtrack just a little bit, the book came out of a teaching moment. And I think like most academics, I firmly believe that teaching informs scholarship, research, writing, speaking, all of it, and that those elements in turn inform teaching and that you can't really be, it's difficult to be a good teacher unless you're actively engaged in your field. So this came out of a teaching moment uh, many years ago when I was building uh, a staff ride, which is a focused study of a campaign or battle that takes place ideally on the ground where the events uh, happened. And so I was building a staff ride for the Philadelphia campaign of 1777 to 78. And if you're doing the Philly campaign, you have to go to Valley Forge. Valley Forge is, however, a static place. So how do I introduce movement into what is largely a static uh, element? Out of that came the uh, the foraging operations f- to sustain the army. That led to an article, it led to a second article, and two articles, that's two chapters, that means you have to do a book. So we got that. So to, to get to the, the question finally, is that um, Washington has been opposing the British Army. General Sir William Howe and his and his forces land at Head of Elk in August of 1777. It's been a miserable voyage for them. Most of the horses have been lost. A number of soldiers have died. Heat, they've been becalmed. Humidity, you name it. Finally, the army gets on firm land. Washington will oppose the, the British as they start their advance on Philadelphia. And Howe is looking to do to accomplish a couple of things. One, to take the, the American capital, he's so he's terrain focused, but he also understands the important symbolic piece of capturing the American capital. Ultimately, that's a meaningless exercise, though, because people can move, papers can move, and all you've got is an empty city, or one occupied only by loyalists and others. He's also looking, though, to destroy Washington's army, destroy the Continental Army, and you have a good chance at ending the rebellion in, in the colonies. So Washington will face him. There are several engagements. The big battle uh, comes on 11 September 1777 at Brandywine, and Howe proves that he is still the tactical master. Washington uh, loses that fight, but the army withdraws in pretty good order. There are a few other battles that take place. Ultimately, to fast forward, December of 1777, the Continental Army was dug in along a wonderful chain of hills at White Marsh, along this ridgeline, and Washington is dearly hoping, I believe, for how to attack him. Washington understands what takes place when you attack entrenched Continentals. 
generally it's a bad thing, although there had been a few exceptions to the rule, such as the the, uh, New York campaign. Hal marches out with his army. He looks at it, and he says, I don't think so. Washington's dug in. This is not the army that I faced in New York. It's got another year of experience under its belt. Its officers are better prepared. A number of the soldiers are veterans uh, from previous campaigns. And he declines Washington's kind offer to attack him. Hal marches back into Philadelphia. Now Washington has got to figure out what to do next. And he has got to balance political, military um, concerns. And the political concerns are at the state level, but also at the uh, national level, if I can use that term. And so after exchanging numerous letters with the uh, governors of Pennsylvania, New Jersey, but also the Second Continental Congress, also holding a number of councils of war with his generals, and he uses them in in a really wonderful manner to use them as sounding boards to um, get an idea of where they stand. It's not so much democracy as it is a case of the general using his officers as ways to second guess his plans, point out the faults, what are the advantages. In many ways, it's very reminiscent of modern planning. So Washington looks at it, and after consultation, he reacts to a suggestion by uh, William, by William Alexander, the so-called Lord Sterling, who recommends the, the, the Great Valley, which is where Valley Forge is located. Valley Forge, not the best place in terms of what it offers. The area has been swept through by both armies, but in terms of its physical location, it's ideal. Washington is within about 20 miles of Philadelphia. So by doing that, by locating the army, he's able to keep an eye on British forces in Philadelphia. He denies the British army freedom of maneuver in southeastern Pennsylvania. By being at Valley Forge, the Continental Army challenges British attempts at exercising rule, at exercising and reestablishing dominion in southeast Pennsylvania. At the same time, the Continental Army is also able to challenge the British Army in the search for food and provisions. So food becomes an element of waging war. This is, as I said, not the best place, but Washington... uh, determines it. And it not the best place, I should say, in terms of what it offers for feeding the soldiers, but as a place to exercise power, to project power, also to bolster the, the governments of Pennsylvania, to an extent New Jersey, and also to exercise the writ of government of the Second Continental Congress, Valley Forge cannot be beat. And so, as I uh, introduce into the book, I think it's valuable to understand Valley Forge not so much as this mythical place that most Americans grow up learning about, rather to understand it in more modern terms, such as Forward Operating Base, or FOB Valley Forge. This is the home of an active, engaged field army that is challenging enemy forces in its home terrain, in its home uh, territory. So that really, I think, changes the way that we view the Continental Army. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really important 
like literal thinking intervention, right? To go, wait a second, this isn't what we what is often thought of, and it is there is a direct analogy to a thing that is in more modern experience. Um, but in some ways, that that kind of makes the confusion like that increases the confusion about if it's sort of right in the middle of everything, um, why then is one of the sort of myths about Valley Forge, or at least one of the things that's commonly taught, it is quite true. There wasn't a lot of food. There wasn't a lot of clothing. There were some serious supply problems. And yet, in a lot of ways, the location isn't necessarily the issue. So why was it so bad? Sure. And, and we're, we're talking, and that's a, that's a great observation. It has to do with structural pieces. And so the Continental Congress sets up a system with the, uh, the commissary general who is in charge of feeding the army and the quartermaster general who does even more, who's there in charge of uh, supplying the army. The quartermaster general also, depending on the relationship that he has with the commanding general, operates as something of something akin to a modern day chief of staff as well as much more and so what washington has got with this is a system that has been set up by the congress and the congress we need to keep in mind deathly afraid of concentrated power particularly military power and it tends to view power and political liberty individual liberty in gendered terms. So power being grasping, being very much male, it's aggressive and it seeks to destroy liberty, which is, of course, in these gendered terms, feminine. And so in order to try and preserve liberty, in order to try and keep all grasping power at bay, Congress sets up some complicated regulations, complicated laws in order to check the accumulation and the growth of power on the part of the commissariat and the quartermaster general. Now, even though these were logistical officers, uh, to, to put it most broadly, they were still officers of the Continental Army in some fashion. And this is this really, really worries the Congress. And so what we get then is a uh, is a situation where the logistical offices of the Continental Army were hamstrung by the Congress, and who suffers? It's the soldiers. They suffer from a want of food. They suffer from a want of uniforms, shoes, transportation, you name it. And as I put it in the book, this army starves in the midst of a land of plenty. One of the major pieces is the fact that the transportation system has collapsed. And the, the, the transportation system, the entire supply system, was never all that strong to begin with. And when it did function well, that was actually the exception to the rule. So with, the, with all of this, the, uh, the army has got to work on ways to sustain itself since it has so much difficulty with the formal supply system taking care of it. And this is not to place any blame on the purchasing agents, the issuing agents, the various officers of the, of the system. They tried their darndest to take care of the soldiers, but regulations, rules, the fact that purchasing agents had to actually venture forth their own money in order, their own credit and their own names 
in order to get supplies for soldiers was one of the major problems. You've also got the fact that there are there were several competing systems. One, the Continental Commissariat and Quartermaster Generals, but you also had the states that were running their own competing efforts to supply their soldiers, their Continental Line, but also the Continental Army proper. And this just leads to confusion, competition, frustration. And again, it's the common soldiers who suffer from all of this. That does sound like a very complicated system for anyone to navigate, um, whether it's an agent or on the ground trying to make it all work, um, or a soldier going, why don't I have shoes? Um, So thank you for kind of explaining the context in which this is happening. We sort of have the strategic level goals, as well as the idea of the structures that are operating or perhaps not operating um, (laughs) to the advantage of the soldier. And so you then go on to talk about kind of the solution that Washington comes up with, um, which on one level seems kind of obvious, right? It's like, okay, well, we're not getting it through our normal supply lines, so we're going to have to go out and look for what we need. On the other hand, this, as you demonstrate in the book, is actually a really risky proposition and quite a complicated one. So can you tell us a little bit about why the idea of this large-scale foraging expedition is so risky in this context? Oh, absolutely. So to go back to my analogy of uh, FOB Valley Forge, this camp also has uh, outposts that are manned by the likes of, say, Captain Henry Lee Jr., who later comes known to us as Light Horse Harry Lee. He commands 5th Troop of the 1st Continental Light Dragoons. And these are officers who are commanding these various outposts who are also running what we would today call screening lines, uh, so mounted and uh, dismounted, so guys on foot, in other words, patrolling areas to make sure that the British are not approaching, to serve as something of an early warning system, and but also to challenge British rule in these contested lands between both garrisons. So what Washington does, and this is a risk perhaps even a gamble, a risk being something you can recover from, a gamble, not so much. So what Washington decides to do, because the army is literally on the verge of starvation, and he's afraid the soldiers are either going to have to starve, which is not a good idea. He's going to have to disperse the army, not a good idea, because that surrenders so much of southeastern Pennsylvania to British uh, rule, or it's going or the army is just going to simply fall apart which is even worse so door number three is the worst of all of them washington determines then that he needs to send out a a large foraging expedition he determines that it's going to be about uh, 1200 soldiers the numbers vary i've seen counts as high as 1400 and this is a mixed group it's a motley if you will very little unit cohesion And so you've got officers from a variety of brigades. You've got soldiers from any number of Continental regiments serving together. Many soldiers who've never served together. They may have been in the same brigade, but they may not have known one another. Many of them serving under unfamiliar officers as well. So Washington decides to send out over a thousand of his best armed, best uniformed, best equipped, and most fit soldiers 
At first, he was going to send them send them out under Brigadier General Anthony Wayne, who's a local boy, knows the area, a really good choice. But then he determines this is such an important operation. I need to send it under my right hand man. No offense to Hamilton fans. This is actually Major General Nathaniel Green, the apostate Quaker from Rhode Island. Green understands military operations. He understands strategy. Yes, like every officer in the Continental Army, he's made mistakes and they will all continue to. But Green gets it. He gets strategy. He understands the larger picture. Green doesn't have much faith in it, but he's a good soldier. He salutes and says, you got it, boss. I will take care of it. And Washington, as I said, does this. He's forced to collapse a portion of his screen line, surrender, not so much surrender, that's really the wrong term, but uh, turn over control to the Pennsylvania militia. And the Pennsylvania militia is a, was a weak read at best. Militiamen reluctant to come out and serve. Many of them had not been paid for previous service. You name it. And so Washington takes this risk and sends Green out to scour the countryside uh, in southeastern Pennsylvania with his ad hoc division. And I'm being really generous calling it a division. And they will go out. Green is a tough customer. At one point, a couple of uh, locals bringing bringing in goods to the British Army. Green's men capture them. Green orders a hundred lashes on their bare backs. He wants to send a message. Thou shalt not supply the British so long as the Continentals are in the neighborhood. And in fact, it's a good idea not to supply them at all. And Green is purposely sending out this message to the locals. As uh, his, his expedition continues, Green gets increasingly frustrated with what's happening At first, he had been, well, throughout, I should say, he supplies receipts to people. That way they can at least get some compensation in nearly valueless continental dollars for the goods that are impressed by the army. But when he discovers that local people were sequestering their goods, hiding them from him, forcing his soldiers to go out and hunt for them, he determines no more. And he tells Washington, I hear their cries, and like Pharaoh, I harden my heart. He determines that nobody will get any receipts if they hide their goods from his foragers. As this goes on, he decides to expand the operation. And in a similar fashion, uh, when he decides that this operation needs to extend into southeastern Pennsylvania, southern New Jersey, at first it was going to be under a colonel, but then he, deter- he decided, you know what, this is way too important. And he sends Anthony Wayne on this mission. Wayne is anything but mad, as his nickname suggests. Wayne is aggressive. Wayne is also very careful. He's very astute. He takes a good deal of time to learn his operational environment and the people who are there. So Wayne will meet up with John Barry, who commands what's left of the Continental Navy on the Delaware River talks to Barry. Barry agrees to ferry Wayne's so-called brigade, maybe 300 soldiers across the river to Salem, New Jersey, where Wayne will link up with the New Jersey militia under Colonel Ellis. Now, Wayne and Barry make a fantastic team. It seems as though they're both cut from the same cloth. 
and he asks Barry if he'll destroy the marsh hay along the river to, one, uh, deceive the British, get their attention, uh, and distract them from uh, Wayne's operations in New Jersey, but at the same time, destroy valuable food for British livestock. And Barry is more than happy to help him out. You know, get, get, give a man a book of matches, tell him to set fire to things, and he immediately becomes a 14-year-old once again. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, th- I think we may all be pyromaniacs at heart. Um, but So Wayne goes through New Jersey, and he does a bang-up job. Uh, discovered in the Connecticut Historical Society a couple of uh, small notes, not even, three by, not even measuring three by five inches. Uh, addressed to a captain in the Seventh Connecticut, and Wayne gives him a list of local men and what sort of property they have in terms of horses and cattle, and he directs his captain to go visit them and impress this livestock for the good of the army. So Wayne has got some tremendous intelligence networks uh, operating, and that's in large part due to local militia officers who are working with him, doing their best. And he'll march his way northward, tries to go as fast as he can, but he can't go too fast because it's winter, not that much feed for the cattle. So he can't push them too hard. He wants to keep them as fat as possible. A difficult task, of course. As he does this, he'll engage in some combat with the British, um, gets chased by the Light Infantry Brigade, which is the elite of the British Army, He'll clash with the uh, 42nd Foot, better known as the Royal Highland Regiment or the Black Watch. Uh, Quite an adventure as he works his way through New Jersey. As all of this takes place, Washington at the same time dispatches Captain Lee and his troop of light dragoons into uh, northern Delaware and northeastern Maryland. And Harry Lee proves himself, in in my view, perhaps the finest example, one of the finest examples of a light cavalry officer. Lee arms himself. Well, first I should say Lee meets with General William Smallwood, who commands the Maryland Division in uh, Wilmington. Lee then proceeds into Del- further into Delaware, meets up with other leading politicians, arms himself with tax rolls, which is really, really bright on his part. And he starts to send out small parties under his uh, lieutenants, his his cornet, which is a junior lieutenant in the cavalry, as well as non-commissioned officers, which is really remarkable. You know, non-commissioned officers being used in what is very reminiscent of modern day usage of NCOs. And he takes a careful accounting and he's able to forward a number of uh, head of cattle and swine, also wagons, back up to the main army. So I'm trying to compress quite a bit into that rather long-winded answer. No, I think that gives us a very good sense of um, how this was organized, why it was really risky and tricky, um, and kind of some of the key people involved, because that comes out very clearly as well as being a contributing factor for this working Um, And I kind of wanted to follow up on sort of those encounters you mentioned a bit. Um, As you mentioned in your very first answer, this is a valley, this is not in the middle of nowhere that they're encamped and that the foraging expedition is happening. So how did the British react to this foraging going all around as well as the burning up of things with pyrotechnic 
officers. <laughs> Pyrotechnic glee, I would hope. Yeah. Um, so General Howe, I don't want to say he sits on his hands, but he sits on his hands. Uh, he will set, he, Howe spends most of his time after White Marsh sending out uh, uh, often as much as half the army on his own foraging expeditions. The British Army's rule of thumb was to have six months of supplies on hand. And if I remember correctly, there were only a couple of times during the entire war where that happened. But Howe pretty much leaves the foraging expedition alone until Wayne crosses into New Jersey. And it's at that point that Howe finally acts. He dispatches the uh, Light Infantry Brigade, excuse me, under um, Abercrombie. And in this, he uses the Royal Navy, which will row and sail the Light Infantry, or the Light Bobs, as they were called, down towards Salem. So they're going to come, come in behind Wayne to the south. He then dispatches, uh, under Sterling, a brigade-level brigade level unit, uh, two battalions of the Black Watch, as well as the Queen's American Rangers under Simcoe, and then a uh, field officer's guard from, I believe, the 46th foot, and they'll land at Cooper's Ferry, modern-day Camden. And so now they've got Wayne between them, an entire division's worth of British soldiers trapping Wayne. The light bulbs go after Wayne, and in fact, he just barely escapes at uh, Swede's Church, just ahead of the light infantry uh, trotting in, gets out, makes his way northward. As he's getting toward Haddonfield, which is uh, about six miles inland from Cooper's Ferry, Wayne starts to think about what he might do to make things a little more difficult for the British. Now, the British had gone there with explicit, the explicit understanding, and I'm quoting, to have a slap at Mr. Wayne. What happens? They immediately turn to what's been their pattern throughout the winter. And that is foraging, looking for their own supplies, looking for the stuff to feed British soldiers. So the, the 42nd advances that six miles in. The uh, light infantry, it doesn't get much beyond uh, really uh, Swede's church uh, along Raccoon Creek. Hmm. Wayne decides, I think it's time maybe to challenge them. And he calls upon uh, uh, Brigadier General Casimir Pulaski and no offense to fans of Pulaski, he was the problem child, among many, within the Continental Army. Pulaski is very prickly about seniority, doesn't believe that he should take orders from a mere infantry officer, and Washington has to set him straight and tell him, look, pal, there's no, sen- there's no seniority of branch, it's date of rank. Wayne has got date of rank, so shut up and color. You will work for him. Pulaski doesn't like it, but he does comply. So Pulaski comes southward with, uh, oh, maybe 50 Continental Light Dragoons, and he will grudgingly work with Wayne. Wayne decides to advance on the British uh, at Haddonfield. Pulaski charges. It's like, thanks a lot, pal. But it scares the British. The British figure, if the Americans are this aggressive, they must have a lot more combat power behind them. The British will basically drop everything that they've foraged, leaving that to the Americans, and begin falling back on Cooper's Ferry. 
Wayne decides, I think I need to press them just a little bit more. So Wayne will follow up. As he's doing this, the British have begun withdrawing already. Wayne, very careful, sends out um, a, a skirmish line, if you will, and they are there to develop the situation, feed Wayne the intelligence so that he can make a decision based upon what these uh, soldiers tell him. Pulaski then enters, and he decides, you know what? It's time to charge. Why not? And so there's a really um, fascinating story that Simcoe leaves in his memoirs about one of the sergeants from his uh, from from his unit, the Queen's American Rangers, who's warning off an officer who's on a horse, prancing about, waving a, a, a saber in the air. That's got to be Pulaski. This sergeant yells at Pulaski, basically, go away, you fool, or I'm going to shoot you. Pulaski can't hear him, and English is not his first language. The sergeant shoots, kills the horse. Pulaski is really annoyed that someone would dare shoot at his horse. Um, But the the British will withdraw, continue their withdrawal just a bit. They'll then bring forces off of the, the Royal Navy transports that are there in order to challenge Wayne. And there's a small skirmish at Cooper's uh, Ferry. In fact, if you go to Camden, there is a bail, an abandoned bail bond uh, storefront, which is in the vicinity where it took place. But the British will eventually withdraw, and Wayne will continue to his march northward, crossing at Burlington with, I'm not sure how many head of cattle, but quite a few is the best answer I can give. So, uh, but so, so the British response really le- left a lot to be desired, and we can chalk that up, I think, to a couple of factors. One, Howe has already given up the fight. He doesn't believe he can win this war. He needs far more soldiers, but he really doesn't believe he can win this. Um, Howe's really a, a, a great tactical commander but I think he's out of his element when it comes to strategy and the bigger picture. Early on, he had asked for something the equivalent of a viceroy, somebody who could command all British forces. That, however, was not forthcoming ever. The closest thing you had was Lord George Germain, who was back in London. Mm-hmm. As um, Howe is looking at this, so he, he also realizes, or he knows this throughout the entire war, this is Britain's only army. Most of the British army was in America. He could not risk it. There were other larger threats, larger challenges to British uh, authority and dominion globally, being namely France and secondarily Spain. And so he could not risk his soldiers' lives. So this necessity of husbanding soldiers' lives, coupled with his own uh, personality really equaled um, operational lethargy, which is mm. perhaps a harsh way of putting it, but um, that's the result. Well, you're the one who wrote the book, so I think you get to decide what the terminology is um, in the assessment. So we'll we'll go with that. Um, for one thing, it's memorable as well. Um, turning to the kind of back inside the continental aspect. Um, in some ways, it looks like there was a lot of kind of good decision making going on, good 
leadership and organization. Um, But we talked a bit about the beginning about kind of the wider structures on the continental side not being set up for efficiency, um, kind of on purpose. Um, And so I was wondering if you could maybe tell us a little bit about some of those challenges on the continental side as the foraging is underway. In fact, you talk about how in the third stage of the operation, um, there are particular challenges around civil military relations within and for the Continental Army. So we've now heard about kind of the amazing officers going out and finding the things and blowing things up or sorry, setting things on fire um, and kind of making this work despite having sort of soldiers who don't know each other and um, a lot of other things going on. Um, But what can you tell us about the kind of civil military relations side during all of this? Oh yeah, you know, and it, the, the, one of the th- one of the many things to keep in mind is the fact that for both armies, for both the, the British Army as well as for the Continental Army, this was a war, a struggle for people's affections. It's a people's war in many ways, and so both Washington and Howe were doing their best to try and gain people's loyalties trying to avoid offending them, putting them off and causing them perhaps to throw their loyalties and their activities to their enemies, at the very least, to try and avoid offending them, at least keeping them indifferent, perhaps, uh, might be the way to put it. And so they're both doing uh, something of a balancing act as they go out and operate in the countryside between the armies and uh, surrounding them. You know, when you sent, when one sends out foraging parties, even if you are offering receipts, this is incredibly offensive and it's frightening. You know, just to see soldiers coming through in your neighborhood and then saying, oh, look, you've got a herd of cattle. I intend to take most of them. I'm going to pay you for it. I understand that it's not as much money as you'd like or might be able to get on on the open market, but tough. And so people really see this as something that's a little better removed than theft. And it doesn't matter who it's coming from. And so it Washington and Howe both straddling a fine line. Washington uh, in particular was, was very reluctant to exercise all of the authority granted to him by the Continental Congress. It's almost dictatorial what they will allow him to do or what they would allow him to do. But he's so sensitive to people's rights, to property rights, to sentiments. And a lot of that speaks to his previous is having been a politician. And that's not a bad thing. He understands people in uh, good, bad and otherwise. He's also matured since he had taken command of the army in July of, um, uh, or excuse me, June into July of 1775. So he is a, he was a much more mature commander with a much more sensitive and broader and deeper understanding of the complexities of war. So all of these things factor into their decision-making. How do we best do it? How do we best supply our soldiers while not offending people to the degree that they're going to be offended or may be offended? And does that work? Uh, yes and no. It, 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 there, there are some people who, who were put off. Uh, I, I think the best, one of the best examples 
is uh, with Harry Lee's expedition into Delaware and Maryland. And Lee has just enough soldiers to annoy people, not enough to cow them into submission or into uh, docility, but just enough to annoy them. And this helps contribute to uh, what's called Cheney Clow's Rebellion, uh, a local loyalist who will uh, rise up as soon as uh, the Continental Light Dragoons exit the area. And so this leads to a, a brief uprising. So no, it's not always, it was not always effective. But as I said, they, they, they tried, but they're walking a fine line. Um, to use another analogy, they're, they're walking on eggshells, as it were. That makes a lot of sense. Um, thank you for kind of explaining that balancing act. Um, one other part of the book I would love to ask you about is um, something that, at least for me as a reader, uh, was one of the parts of the book that were kind of the reality of what it was like on the ground kind of seemed to come most alive, um, which is the bit talking about the town, I guess, of Elk. What was the strategic significance of this place? Oh, sure. Yeah, Elk. And if it, Elk was had, had been a... Um, I don't want to call it shipbuilding. Well, yeah, you could call it shipbuilding, boat building uh, center before the war. Also the uh, home of the Hollingsworth family, uh, locally prominent merchants, um, uh, an, an extended clan of merchants, if you will. So Elk gets established ooh, got, or fairly early in the war as a, a um, as a magazine. In other words, a supply depot that's part of a much larger chain of magazines that will collect supplies. And if they ever have the transportation, and that's one of the major problems, there aren't enough wagons or teams or drivers to move the goods that are actually available. So Elk serves as a magazine for the Continental Army. It's actually something of a linchpin that connects the uh, the Northern states, or as they were called, the Eastern states, referring to New England, with the Mid-Atlantic and the uh, Upper South, uh, the Chesapeake uh, states. So elk serves a variety of purposes for this, and it becomes one of the key nodes for the Continental Army's supply uh, system. And the British come upon, when they land just south of it, uh, near Head of Elk, which is where the Elk River feeds into the, the Chesapeake, how... Or rather, Washington's men will try and empty out the supplies as best as possible. They're unable to do it, and so the British will come upon quite a few, and they're they're able to actually sustain themselves for a couple of weeks off of what they seize at Elk. What they can't seize, or what they can't seize, they try and destroy. And in fact, there's some reports of grain being, if I remember correctly, knee deep in some streets. So they're scattering it, trying to destroy it destroying uh, continental shipping that's tied up. And these are coasting vessels, by the way, so not terribly deep draft. So uh, destroying those as well. Once the British leave, one of the things that, that will take place uh, later on during all of this foraging is the reestablishment of Elk as a magazine. And so uh, they go about, the Continentals go about trying to reestablish this and bring it back to its its former status. At the same time, these uh, supply officers were out looking for other places that they could use to help sustain this and help extend the network. 
finally uh, happening, deciding upon Charlestown, uh, which makes a great location, a nice ready-built wharf, a warehouse, easy access of roads, you name it. All of these pieces that connect it to Elk. Elk's location, by the way, besides being tied between, besides being linked rather, with the Chesapeake, also has got a short connection to the Delaware River. So it's not too many miles away from that. So it makes it really an ideal place to run a logistical operation. That's a good reason to be an elk, I suppose. Um, (laughs) So, I I mean, thank you for explaining that. might seem um, a little bit like a tangent, but in this wonderful kind of tapestry you've woven for us of all the different levels that this is working on, um, I think it does a really good job to kind of dispel that myth you mentioned at the beginning of kind of Valley Forge being huddled in frozen mounds of people who are starving with no proper clothes all by themselves in the middle of nowhere. Um, Elk is kind of one piece of that whole idea that actually forward operating base probably makes a lot more sense. Um, So now that we kind of have some idea, and obviously we've not been able to go into uh, every aspect of the book and every kind of story in detail. um, So listeners should definitely take this as a sort of summary rather than obviously the same thing as reading the book. Um, But I wonder if we can kind of zoom out a little bit now that we have all those pieces and maybe talk a little bit about obviously probably the most famous person involved in this, obviously George Washington, who at the beginning of this conversation, you talk about in a lot of ways doing a lot of good things in terms of leadership, Um, kind of having good people uh, by his side, many of whom you talk about in the book, he kind of promotes up or notices that they're good. Um, But you also talk about at the end of the book that Washington's decision-making and leadership during this period is, quote, a study in consistent if uneven growth and maturation. So can you kind of tell us a little bit about why that's your judgment of Washington in this period? Certainly. Washington becomes the commanding general, the commander-in-chief of all continental forces, meaning the Continental Army and the uh, very tiny Continental Navy and even tinier Continental Marine Corps. And he's learning on the job. His highest rank previously had been colonel of the uh, 1st Virginia Regiment during the uh, Seven Years' War, better known to Americans as the French and Indian War. He was a study of immaturity as a young man. As general, though, he's grown a bit. He still has a bit of learning to do. He makes a number of mistakes as, as a tactical uh, commander, I think he he's generally rather mediocre. Washington often likes or liked. I keep speaking in the present tense, but um, Washington often liked uh, overly complex plans. Sometimes they work, such as at Trenton, where where he bags most of a Hessian brigade. Germantown, not so much. So he he's got some problems there. But in terms of the big picture, strategic. How do we win this war? What's the place of the Continental Army in the larger struggle? Washington gets it. And he realizes that he can't risk the army to fight everywhere, every time that he might like, because he's very much an aggressive commander. He realizes he's got to husband this strength. The army, in a sense, served as the armed representation 
of the people in rebellion. So so long as the Continental Army lived, so too did the revolution. Washington gets this. Now, as as he serves as the commander, he's also grooming, if you will, his subordinates, and he establishes something that is so incredibly vital in 1777, much as it is today in 2022, and will be, I think, forever, and that's a mutual trust between himself and his subordinates. They've They have a mutual trust and a respect. He makes mistakes, they make mistakes, but he notices how they grow and how they learn from these mistakes. And Washington will give them some, if you will, wiggle room for this. And so he continues to develop. He makes these these decisions. He picks the right people for for the right jobs. As we fast forward, you know, he, uh, he takes Nathaniel Green, who is even more of a novice than Washington ever was. This is somebody who has even less formal education um, than Washington, who has no real formal education, someone whose father was actually opposed to uh, formal education. Green learns, though, the uh, the business side of running a, a foundry, running an ironwork. He's also incredibly widely read, deeply read in many subjects. He notices that Green is a steady performer. He wants to make Green his commissary general. Green doesn't want it. You know, as Green writes back, whoever heard of a quartermaster general, not commissary general, but quartermaster general, forgive me. But Green, as I said earlier, a good soldier, says, all right, fine, I'll do it. And he'll help put the uh, quartermaster general's office into fairly good working order. Not great working order, but good enough by continental standards. 1780 rolls around, and we have the disaster at Camden in August under uh, Major General Horatio Gates. Washington needs to reestablish continental control because the British look like they're going to retake the Deep South. Who's he going to turn to? His right-hand man, Nathaniel Green. And Green is ecstatic. Finally, I get out of this office and I get to command a field army. So Green will go south. And this is because Washington has learned and his officers have learned as well. The uneven part, fast forward to 1781, Washington has been fixated on retaking New York City. It's only because the French will convince him and do some diplomatic arm twisting that Washington will eventually agree to marching southward toward Yorktown with the object of bagging Cornwallis's field army. So, as I said, somewhat uneven, but it was a steady growth as a commander, as a leader, as a general. Fair enough. And growth, I mean, it works, is the other thing, right? No one, they, they, the army was then able to continue fighting, um, which is not a small thing, given the complexity of the challenge you outlined for us at the beginning of the interview. Um, so I kind of want to bring it back to the beginning in a way, because you talked about how this book came from a teaching moment. Um, and in fact, I really do agree with what you said, that uh, such great research comes out of teaching moments. And in fact, quite often good books come out of teaching moments, not just in terms of 
the questions that are asked, but also how a book is then written because it is to explain it to kind of an audience you have in your head um, rather than just, goodness knows, I'm going to put words on a page and hope it makes sense. Um, so if we think of this book in that context of a teaching moment, what do you think can we learn about the Continental Army, either in this moment or more generally, from studying this foraging? Um, wow, great. You know, one of the things that I try to drive home with my students is that chronological proximity does not equal greater relevance. I think that that's often a case of hubris and the arrogance of presentism, that if somehow an event is closer in time, that it's more meaningful, the further back, it's much quainter, it's much less complex. And honestly, that's just patent nonsense in my view. And so what I want to drive home, among among other things, is the fact that the Continental Army was an active field army doing the stuff of active armies today, of active armies in World War II, of future active armies, you name it. It was engaged in complex operations that spanned political as well as military realms. It also brings to the forefront, I hope, the significance of logistics and just how vital they are. You know, when historian, when military historians write about uh, their whatever it is that they're writing about, we tend to go with the, um, you know, forgive me, the sexy stuff, the combat, battles. That's what gets attention. That's what sells books. Logistics, oh my gosh, that's you know, basically going out shopping. Well, it's far more than that. And so I wanted to bring to light the challenges, the complexities, the vital role of sustaining the army and how all of this touched upon the ability of the army to project not just combat power, but political power, but also to sustain the revolution and so much more. And I I hope I've succeeded in doing that. Well, I think you've definitely made it clear that um, ensuring that your army has food and clothes is not the same thing as going out to the shops. Um, (laughs) So you've definitely nipped that one in the bud. Um, And I think from the book, Donna really, uh, as I said, kind of woven this web and made it clear that the story that is often told is really much more complex than it's often portrayed um, and also much more interesting and relevant Um, So I think you're probably going to have students who really get into this um, when you take them to see it or have them read the book. I hope so. I do hope so. So I wonder, as we kind of come to the end of the interview, I always want to ask a few sort of about questions about you and your process and your work. Um, And obviously, we've been hearing some of what's in the book. I've obviously read the book, but you're the one who wrote it and spent the time with all of the details of who put what in which memoir and diary and whatever. Um, So I'm wondering if there's uh, anything in particular that comes to mind that was surprising to you in the process of researching and writing this book? You know, I I wouldn't say so much... Well, yeah, a bit surprising. And I'd mentioned those uh, those couple of notes that Wayne uh, had 
sent to a, the, this captain, and I, I can't believe I'm forgetting his name. I, I want to say Woodruff, Theodore Woodruff. Um, please forgive me if I got that wrong. Uh, those were really delightful, and they, in my mind, it allowed me to bring the captain back to life, as it were. Um, that he here's this one fellow who's taking part in an incredibly important operation and he may not have realized it. I think the thing that, one of the things that really touched me most was uh, the account book that Harry Lee's troop maintained. And in it, it has the names of every person whose property he and his soldiers visited, what they impressed, what the valuation of the goods were, how many hands high the horses were, you name it. It's also got the names of all of the wagon drivers, as well as the, the wagon masters. So the, the master in charge of, say, four, five, six, however many wagons were being sent to some location. Among the drivers, and this really spoke to me about the complexity of the American War for Independence, and the American Revolution in which this war takes place. There were drivers with names like Negro Joseph, Negro Cuff, Negro Samuel. These were enslaved drivers, men deprived of their own human agency, whose masters may have been receiving a stipend of sort. The unfree working on behalf of the political independence of a, a society that relegated them to property. And for me, that speaks to some of the complexity of the revolution, and it really makes it all the more vital. It's not a simple child tale of black and white good guys and bad guys. It's as complex as life is today. So that account book really did speak to me. Mm, I think that's a really, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Cause I think that's a really um, useful sort of reminder of the powerful things that we can often find in archives in kind of literally things that look like dry, boring books. Um, and then you take a moment to engage with them and read them and go, Oh, hang on a second. This gives us a whole window into an aspect of life or an aspect of history um, that doesn't always get brought to the surface. So um, thank you for sharing that with us. Um, and so then to move on to my final question, uh, which feels a little bit mean, but I'm going to ask it anyway, um, which is that this book has just come out um, pretty literally. I don't even know if you've gotten a physical copy of it yet, um, but it is done. It is out. So aside from the fact that you're moving institutions, what are you working on next? <laughs> um, yeah, um, not mean. In fact, I'm more than happy to talk about this stuff. Um, I am editing a collection of letters and a journal from, from an American soldier who served in the Mexican War, 1846 to 48, a fellow by the name of Edward Ashley Bowen Phelps, a fellow who's got the education of an officer but serves as a private in the Regiment of Mounted Riflemen, today's 3rd Cavalry Regiment. 
And these are a wonderful collection of letters that I first encountered as a graduate student many years ago and promised myself that someday I would edit them. So I'm in the process. I've already transcribed the, the collection. I'm in the process now of uh, writing rather large endnotes for it and explaining all of it. Also building something of a uh, microhistory, telling his family's story, because this guy is just fascinating. So I've got to know what made Phelps Phelps. How did Phelps become Phelps? And so I've been digging into the family history and, and uh, just been having a ball doing that. So I'm hoping to turn in the manuscript, planning on turning in the manuscript next summer. And I am working on other things, of course, because of course. I... <laughs> I, I need to keep busy and I enjoy it. I love teaching, but I'll tell you what, research and writing are a close second. And as I mentioned before, for me, they reinforce one another and I, I can't do one without the other. Well, that's a lovely note to end the interview on. Um, so to listeners, a reminder, the book that we've been discussing is titled Feeding Washington's Army, Surviving the Valley Forge Winter of 1778 published by University of North Carolina Press in 2022. Rick, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you, Miranda. This was a delight.